0: Thank you guys for coming. Once again, this is part five of extremist literature. So we've been reading the Pure Worship of Jehovah book. Uh, It's Jehovah's Witnesses' new book. It's based on the book of Ezekiel. Um, And it's been pretty interesting so far. It's been very, very interesting. Um, Last time we talked a little bit about... Let's see. So we were on chapter two last time. And it was kind of a preliminary uh, grouping of chapters. It, w- it didn't really get into the, the, the bulk of the book, I guess you could say, because now we're entering section one. So this is section one, um, chapter three. Now I'm just going to scroll up to the table of contents real quick, just take a quick gander here. So Okay, so chapters one and two, wh- which we just finished, that was in the introduction section. So this is actually section one, and it contains... um, The name of section one is The Heavens Were Opened. It contains chapters three and four. I began to see visions of God. That's the name of the chapter that we're getting into now. So the focus of this chapter as listed... Um, in the beginning, it says, "I began to see the visions of, or I began to see visions of God." Ezekiel one one, and it says, "Focus is an overview of Ezekiel's vision of the celestial chariot." Uh, I'm sorry, the celestial chariot. Okay, so I've seen other Jehovah's Witness books before, and they've actually gone through basically verse by verse. They've gone through Bible books verse by verse. Like, I remember the book of Isaiah. I mean, I think it was called Isaiah's Prophecies, was the Jehovah's Witness version of that book. And it, I think it just kind of goes through verse by verse, the entire book, start to finish. And it was similar with the the book of Daniel, the Daniel's Prophecies book. And, uh, and then... Revelation, it's grand climax at hand. They all went through basically verse by verse or chapter by chapter. And I guess this is probably what's happening here too. So, okay. This is uh, paragraph one. It says, Ezekiel stares into the distance, peering out across the broad, sandy plain. His eyes narrow, then open wide. He can scarcely believe what he's seeing. There, near the horizon, a tempest is brewing. But it's no ordinary storm. As a fierce wind from the north whips his hair and clothing about, he sees an immense, towering cloud. It's lit up from within by flashing fire, and its glow reminds him of molten, precious metal. As the cloud rushes toward Ezekiel, a sound grows louder and louder, a roaring like a great army on the move. Okay. So they're kind of just describing the scene that's laid out, I guess in the very beginning of Ezekiel. Okay, this is paragraph two. At about 30 years of age, this young man is having the first of a series of unforgettable experiences. He feels the hand of Jehovah, quote unquote, upon him, the the irresistible power of Jehovah's Holy Spirit. What that spirit will cause him to see and hear will be spectacular, far more amazing than any special effects movie created by today's filmmakers. Ezekiel's vision will leave him face down on the ground completely overwhelmed yeah I don't really have much to say about that it's just kind of uh describing the beginning of the the book of Ezekiel but you know what i, I it's been a long time since I've read that book um uh, let me just look it up let me just look up Ezekiel 1 1 in the NIv and just out of curiosity see what it you know what it says let's look at 1 1 through 24. Um, yeah, I'm not actually planning on reading all that. I'm just kind of glancing at it here. Okay, so, yeah, it looks like it's just kind of describing a scene here. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, so on and so forth. Just kind of describing a scene. I didn't realize that the book of Ezekiel was, like, so prophetic like that. It's almost in its own way like the book of Revelation, interestingly enough, but anyway. Okay, so that was paragraph 2. This is paragraph 3. However, Jehovah— Okay, just step back for a second. The end of paragraph 2 says, Ezekiel's vision will leave him face down on the ground completely overwhelmed. Paragraph 3. However, Jehovah has more in mind than simply filling this man with awe. Ezekiel's first vision, like the rest of those recorded in that thrilling prophetic book— is rich with meaning, both for him and for faithful servants of Jehovah today. So let us take a closer look at what what Ezekiel sees and hears. Yeah, so, as Jehovah's Witnesses have mentioned earlier in this book, they're going to be talking about types and anti-types a lot. So they have this idea that this book is is foreshadowing what is to come for humanity. So... They're kind of saying here, they're not just kind of implying either. They're outright saying that this book and what it has to say, they're they're going to interpret it to mean something specific for us today. Uh, they're going to say something about what's going to happen to the world. They're going to determine what happens to us in the world, how we die or when Armageddon happens or some other nonsense like that as a result of what they're reading in this Bible book. So hopefully we get some really crazy predictions. I I always love to read that weird stuff. Okay, so that was paragraph three. Now there's a subheading. It's called The Setting. And this is paragraph four. It says, read Ezekiel 1, 1 to 3. And actually, it's pretty short, so I'm just gonna give it a read real quick. In my 13th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River. The heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kibar River, the land of the Babylonians, there the hand of the Lord was on him. Okay, that bored the shit out of me, and I don't know what I gained from it, but um but whatever, okay. So I read it. Read Ezekiel 1, 1-3. Let us first recall the setting. The year was 613 BCE. As we learned in the preceding chapter, Ezekiel was in Babylon, living among his fellow exiles in a community by the river Chebar Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, let me just finish the paragraph. Evidently, a navigable... A navigable... Man-made canal that branched off from the River Euphrates and later rejoined it. Okay. Never heard that word before. Navigable. That's weird. I guess it means it's it's possible to be navigated. Um, it just kind of stood out to me when I read it there. Anyway, so they say Chibar, the River Chibar, C H E, B A R. But the Bible, the N I V, apparently spells it. Uh, let me find it. Okay, the the N I V apparently spells it K E. B A R the Ki Bar River, not the Chi Bar River. That's super interesting. Like they have different pronunciations, different, uh, different spellings completely. I wonder what that's all about. It generally, Jehovah's Witnesses go into the Bible translation with bias, and they will admit that to you. They have a, a huge team of translators going in and translating the Bible but they're going in with bias. We expect them to assume that if this word can't be understood or interpreted, they're going to go with what would best support the doctrine that already exists, because that was revealed to them through the governing body, through anointed people, through Jehovah, you know. So they're going to go with what they already know. They're going to default to what they already believe or know about the Bible when it's not possible to get an accurate, 100% accurate understanding of it. So, yeah, bias slips in with Jehovah's Witnesses, and that's why I don't trust their translation. I don't think that they necessarily have malicious intent. I don't think that they're scheming to deceive people or anything into believing their way when they know full well it's not true I don't believe that that's the case I just think that their bias slips in when they're doing the translation heavily in a few places and I have some pretty strong examples of that happening too I think I was watching a John Cedars video recently and he was talking about how he wasn't sure that that was the case like he doesn't he doesn't know that the watchtower society is intentionally um, slipping these words in and changing words to support their doctrine yeah i don't i don't know that i'd say that either i i just know that their bias heavily affects what they decide uh you know to list as a translated word i mean you can see it with the name jehovah the the name jehovah is not actually in the bible anywhere their j's didn't exist in that language Until I mean Jays didn't exist until like four hundred years ago or something. So There's absolutely no way that the name Jehovah is in the Bible, and the fact that it's in their translation should be a testament to the fact that their bias slips in. They're like, oh, the Tetragrammaton, well, you know, it's been revealed to us that God's name is Jehovah, or whatever, or they'll say, you know, that's the English translation of God's name, and we go with the English translation. Just like we say Jesus instead of Yeshua, we go with Jehovah instead of Yahweh. That kind of thing. That's the reason why I don't trust anything their Bible has to say. I don't believe that it's accurate. I don't believe that it's true to the original Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and all that other good stuff, because I I, I've seen too many examples of bias slipping in. So that you know, that's my reasoning for using the NIV to read a Jehovah's Witness publication, because I you know I. I just don't even want to get in—I don't even want to look at their Bible. I just don't trust it to that extent. So anyway, all right, so that was paragraph four. This is paragraph five. It says, The exile's home, Jerusalem, was some 500 miles away. The temple where Ezekiel's father had served as a priest had fallen into corruption and idolatry. The throne in Jerusalem, where David and Solomon had once reigned in glory, was now a uh, was now a source of shame. Faithless king, jo- oh my God! Here's here are those weird words now. Faithless king Jehoiachin was here in Babylon, with the exiles. His replacement on the throne, Zedekiah, was a mere puppet and a wicked man. That's super fascinating. Something else to consider about the Bible is that a lot of this stuff was written from the perspective of the leaders of these nations. So, for example, we had um, Hezekiah. There was an army coming at him, and he was... It was the a battle with the ancient Assyrians. Well, now we have the Assyrians' uh, accounts of events. We know how things played out according to them. And then we have the Bible's account of what happened, and they're completely different. And of course, Hezekiah, he's trusted inherently. I mean, the story that, that, that he gives, the Bible gives, is trusted inherently, even though we have secular records of the other side, and we have reason to believe that the Bible is, is false in that sense, you know, on, uh, for those records. We have reason to believe the Bible is wrong for those records, But people still side with the Bible, even though it's... I mean, just those few verses are completely biased and flawed. So here we have the... uh, I'm sorry, the, the publication here is saying, Faithless King Jehoiachin was here in Babylon with the exiles. His replacement on the throne, Zedekiah, was a mere puppet and a wicked man. I am very hesitant to believe that Zedekiah was any of those things. Based on the fact that it's coming out of the Bible, I'd like to see secular records before I, you know, accepted anything that this says about the, about that king. Okay, so this is paragraph six. For a man of faith like Ezekiel, these must have seemed the darkest of times. Some of his fellow exiles may have wondered, has Jehovah left us forever? Will this evil power Babylon, with her countless false gods, really banish the pure worship of Jehovah and eliminate his rulership from the earth? Oh, look at that. They said pure worship of Jehovah, just like the name of the book. It's like when they say the name of a movie in the movie. Except this is like a lot less exciting. Okay, this is paragraph uh, seven. With that background in mind, why not begin your personal study of this subject by reading Ezekiel's vivid description of his first vision? And then it cites Ezekiel 1, 4 to 4-28. As you do, try imagining yourself in Ezekiel's place, seeing what he saw and hearing what he heard. Okay, so now they're kind of encouraging people, I guess, or whatever, to read this part of Ezekiel on their own. Um, the congregations are probably gonna stick a cattle prod up people's asses, for lack of a better term, trying to you know, encourage them to go through the book of Ezekiel pretty soon. In fact, they'll probably go out, you know, most of them will probably go through it on their own anyways soon, because, you know, with all the talk of Ezekiel. So, uh, yeah, apparently it cites Ezekiel 1, 4 to 28 as Ezekiel's vivid description of his first vision. Interesting. Okay. So now this is the next subheading. It says, a vehicle like no other. Paragraph 8. Taken as a whole, what did Ezekiel witness? It looked like an immense, awe-inspiring vehicle, which has been described as a chariot. Okay. Huh. It included four tremendous wheels accompanied by four unusual spirit creatures, later identified as cherubs. Above them, uh, you know what? Hang on, let me just read Ezekiel ten one because it cites that as as identifying them as cherubs. Um, Just curious about what they're they're saying here. I looked and I saw the likeness of a throne of lapis lazuli above the vault that was over the heads of the cherubim. Okay, so it's identifying uh, cherubs in this verse. I, I don't know why they believe that it can be tied back to the, the previous verse they were talking about, but who knows, maybe they maybe that's right. I don't know. I, I'm just not reading the full context, apparently. So I can't really criticize it without doing that. Alright, so continuing on, above them stretched a vast platform or expanse like ice, above which sat the glorious throne of God, occupied by Jehovah himself. Exclamation mark What though was the meaning of that chariot? What was the meaning of that chariot? That's an odd question. Ezekiel's vision could fittingly represent only one thing, the heavenly part of Jehovah's glorious universal organization. Oh, here we go. Why do we say that? I'm super curious too. Consider three factors that lead to such a conclusion. Okay. All right, so here at the end, it says, Ezekiel's vision could fittingly represent only one thing, the heavenly part of Jehovah's glorious universal organization. Now, let me just take a second to summarize what just happened. Ezekiel described some random thing he was thinking about. He said he had a vision where he looked up and saw God sitting on a chariot or something. There's basically no information outside of that. We just have a single Bible prophet looking up and seeing God on a chariot. That's it. And from that, Jehovah's Witnesses derive all kinds of information. This is what they're famous for, reading into something with absolutely no basis for those conclusions. Universal organization. Hmm. I do wonder what they mean by that. Um, Hopefully they're going to expand upon that a little bit. Anyway, okay, this is paragraph 9 says in italics, Jehovah's relationship with his heavenly creatures. Um, Oh, FYI, that, yeah. So they have a bunch of pictures here, and they have a few paragraphs following this that have some words in italics in the beginning. So they're kind of you know, drawing your attention to this information. So, paragraph 9 says, Jehovah's relationship with his heavenly creatures. That's kind of one of their factors that lead to a conclusion that Ezekiel's vision represents Jehovah's universal organization. Kind of a confusing thing, but... So, paragraph 9 lists one of those factors as Jehovah's relationship with his heavenly creatures... Then we have the vehicle represents more than the cherubs, paragraph 10. And then 11 is Daniel's similar vision of heaven. So let's take a quick look at the first factor that Jehovah's Witnesses believe points to Ezekiel's vision as representing God's universal organization. So paragraph 9 says, Jehovah's relationship with his heavenly creatures. This is factor number one. Note that in this vision, Jehovah's throne is situated above the cherubs. In other parts of God's word, Jehovah is similarly described or represented as sitting enthroned above or between his cherubs. Of course, he does not literally sit above his cherubs, as if he needs to be carried by those mighty spirit creatures, any more than he needs to ride on a literal chariot. But the cherubs support his sovereignty, and he can send them to any spot in the universe to carry out his sovereign will. They, like all of God's holy angels, carry out Jehovah's discussions. Uh, I'm sorry, carry out Jehovah's decisions as his ministers or agents. In that sense, Jehovah rides, quote unquote, upon them all, directing them with his sovereign rule, as if they comprise one huge unified vehicle. Okay, so yeah, this is them kind of interpreting, quote-unquote. They're interpreting uh, various verses in the Bible. And apparently they want us to read 2 Kings 19.15. They think it supports their position in some way. But something I want to point out here, something really interesting, is something I noticed Jehovah's Witnesses doing, and I notice a lot of other denominations doing too, they're assuming that God is omnipotent, which means He's all powerful, and that He's omniscient, so He knows everything, and that He's omnipresent; He's everywhere at once. Jehovah's Witnesses w- work under that assumption, but that was not always the assumption. People didn't always think that about God. That's a r- relatively recent idea. For a real, I mean, look, just look at the book of Genesis. Look at the first few chapters. In fact, look at the whole damn book. It's talking about God wandering through the Garden of Eden looking for Adam and Eve. Why was he looking for them? Did he not know where they were? Is he all-knowing or not? Did he not know that they had sinned? Because they had to tell him that they sinned. Is he all-knowing or not? Didn't he know that they were going to eat that fruit? He's either all-knowing or he isn't. And the entire first five books of the Bible point to the idea that he's probably not all-knowing or all-powerful. I mean, he's jealous of other gods. He's a jealous God. Why? What's he afraid of? Isn't he the only God? Why is he afraid of people worshiping other gods if he's the only one anyways? It just, it doesn't add up. It's strange. And people have been super imposing the idea that God is all-knowing and all-powerful. Really, not for very long. It's, it's honestly a reasonably recent thing. So, anyway. Yeah, I just see Jehovah's Witnesses doing that here. It's like, right here, it says... Of course, he does not literally sit above his cherubs as if he needs to be carried by those mighty spirit creatures any more than he needs to ride on a literal chariot. Well, if the Old Testament is to be believed, if we take it in its context, the way that it was written and and what it says, if we just read the Old Testament, it has some really interesting implications behind it that, that we could take away. Um, it's just kind of based on Jewish culture and what we've learned from it like ancient jewish culture uh, but anyway okay so if we remember they they said that they believe Ezekiel's vision represents Jehovah's glorious universal organization they were giving us three factors that lead to that conclusion to that lead them to conclude that first one was Jehovah's relationship with his heavenly creatures now now we're on uh, the second one paragraph 10. The vehicle represents more than the cherubs. The cherubs that Ezekiel saw numbered four. That number is often used in the Bible to suggest symmetry or completeness and all embracing universality. Okay, now we're getting into numerology. Fittingly then, the presence of four, oh my god, three pictures in a row, cherubs, suggests that all of Jehovah's loyal spirit sons are represented. Note, too, that the wheels and even the cherubs themselves are full of eyes, suggesting the watchful alertness of many more than just the four spirit creatures shown, and Ezekiel's description of the vehicle implies that it is immense, making even those impressive cherubs look small. Likewise, the heavenly part of Jehovah's organization is vast, encompassing far more than the four cherubs. Okay. So their their reasoning, their factor number two, the vehicle represents more than the cherubs. Okay. I mean, can we all see what they're doing here? They took a random Bible verse where a guy is building a picture for the audience about God riding on cherubs or something, and the governing body members are pulling away every little detail and dissecting it. Coming up with an explanation for what it means. When in reality, it doesn't mean anything. It's just some dude talking about a vision from 5,000 years ago or something. There's nothing to dissect. Like I said, this is one of their favorite things to do. They're arbiters for God. They're his mouthpiece on earth. So anything they say goes. God might as well be telling us this information directly, as far as they're concerned. This is an interesting case where a group of people believe their own propaganda. People ask the question, are the governing body members true believers, or are they scam artists? I think they're true believers, mostly. I think they drank their own Kool-Aid. I think there might be one or two at the top who don't really buy it, but by and large, I think they all bought their own propaganda. With a logical argument, usually you have premises, or premises, and then a conclusion, right? So premise one. Um, let's just kind of do a, a, you know, an example here. Premise one, the drink that I have in my hand says root beer on the front of the can. Premise two, the liquid inside is caramel colored. Premise three, it is um, carbonated. Conclusion, it's root beer. So we break it down step by step. We have a grouping of reasons why we think this thing, right? And then we have a conclusion that we draw from all of those things, all of that, that grouping of, of facts that we have there, right? So what Jehovah's Witnesses are doing in this, um, in this chapter here is they're kind of going through that. They're saying, we've come to this conclusion. Here's our conclusion, We've concluded that Ezekiel's vision represents Jehovah's organization. Now, here are our premises. Jehovah's relationship with his heavenly creatures. Uh, And then they explain why they think that that's a premise. And then they say the vehicle represents more than the cherubs. But here's the problem. That one there, the vehicle represents more than the cherubs? That is a conclusion in itself, that can't be a premise, if it, you know. Th- there's no evidence to back that up. They're just listing it as a premise when it's not. The vehicle represents more than the cherubs. Explain to me why that is. Explain to me why the vehicle represents more than the cherubs. You know, I I, I haven't accepted that premise yet. They're going on to say here. Uh, let's see. Yeah. Note too that the wheels and even the cherubs themselves are full of eyes suggesting the watchful alertness of many more than just the four spirit creatures shown. yeah, so they're interpreting something that isn't there they're they're taking these things to mean something they very well could not mean. I mean it could be something completely different. in fact, it couldn't it, it's possible it doesn't mean anything at all. you know it, it's possible that this this guy took magic mushrooms by accident or lsd by accident and or on or on purpose i guess too i mean that's possibility i'm just saying it's possible he took some kind of hallucinogenic drug intentionally or not and wrote down what he saw and here jehovah's witnesses are telling us this is what he meant when he wrote that down and we know that for a fact i mean we don't know that for a fact I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses are just logically wrong when they dissect it this way. Uh, You know, kind of laying it on the line and saying it as fact. Um, I just find it fascinating how they line these things up. But okay, so those were the first two premises, the first two factors, I guess you could say. This is factor number three. It's paragraph 11. Daniel's similar vision of heaven. That's the the third factor for why they think Ezekiel's vision represents uh, Jehovah's organization. Daniel's similar vision of heaven. The prophet Daniel lived out the long years of exile in the city of Babylon, and he too was given a vision of heaven. Interestingly, in that vision as well, Jehovah's throne had wheels. Daniel's vision focused on the immensity of Jehovah's spirit family in heaven. Daniel saw Uh, quote-unquote, a thousand thousands and 10,000 times 10,000, unquote, of God's spirit sons standing before Jehovah. They sat as a celestial court, each individual evidently in his own assigned place. Does it not seem reasonable to conclude—here's their conclusion, ready for it— that Ezekiel's vision represented this same glorious spirit assemblage? Interesting. Okay. Um, I don't know. No, I don't feel like it's reasonable to conclude anything about this, truthfully. I don't feel like we should conclude anything. I think we should conclude that we don't know the context behind what was being written or who actually wrote this or anything else about it. So I'm going to take it as a pretty story that has literary value, but basically no value past that. But out of curiosity, I am wondering what the time difference is between when Ezekiel was written and when Daniel was written. And uh, I'm also wondering which was written first and if one had access to the other when it was written. That would be really interesting to find out. If somebody finds that out, put that in the comments. Okay, so that was paragraph 11 those are the three factors that they that that bring them to the conclusion that Ezekiel's vision represents Jehovah's organization i think that they're 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 trying to interpret the bible is what they're doing here they're trying to prophesy is what they're doing and there's no evidence for what they're saying here there's no reason to believe the things that they're that they're outright saying. So, yeah, I reject their conclusion. In fact, I reject their premises, which means their conclusion is, you know, I I believe that their conclusion is incorrect. All right, so let's see. That was paragraph 11, I believe. Yeah, now we're on 12. Okay. Jehovah knows that it is a protection for us humans to focus our minds on spiritual realities the things unseen, quote-unquote, as the Apostle Paul called them. Why? Being flesh and blood creatures, we tend to dwell too much on the things seen, our physical concerns, which are only temporary. Satan often plays on that tendency and pushes us toward becoming fleshly-minded people. To help us resist that pressure, Jehovah lovingly provides us with such passages as this one in Ezekiel's prophecy, giving us thrilling reminders of the awesome majesty of Jehovah's celestial family. Yeah, um, so what they're saying here is Satan often plays on that tendency for us to be concerned with our lives, with life, with living, with surviving. So Satan plays on our need to live and survive and make money in this world is what they're saying and to help us resist pressure jehovah lovingly provides us with passages from ezekiel's prophecy so it's kind of common for certain christian denominations to say don't let things stress you out just live your life you know don't don't go overboard don't give into the anxiety of of everyday life uh, lean on God and all that other good shit. That's not what they're saying in this. That's different. So I I can understand where traditional Christians are coming from when they say something like that. Okay, that's not what's happening here. Jehovah's Witnesses actually want. Um, they they don't want you to go to college. They want you to. Uh, Quit your job in many cases and pioneer or have a job that will allow you to pioneer, which means knocking on doors, at, you know, I don't know what it is, 70 hours a month or something now. I don't remember what it is since I've left, but uh, for any non-extra of witnesses in here, but um, they want you to pioneer. And if you, if you have a job that might interfere with meetings or pioneering or some other thing, you need to leave that job and damn the stress, damn everything, damn rent. Just forget it. Doesn't matter. Get evicted and live on the street as long as you're pioneering. I mean, that's how they feel. That's not, that's not, an. I don't, I feel confident saying that isn't an exaggeration. That is how they feel. Whatever it takes to pioneer. Now, they do think that you have to survive. You have to live. So they, you know, they still think that you have to Uh, To work, of course, but over and over again in their propaganda videos and in their literature, they will point out that they don't want you. um, So if, if you're in a job that interferes with meetings or something, they encourage you to quit. They want you to quit that job, whatever it takes to get to meetings, rent money or not. So it's pretty crooked stuff. Anyway, so that was the end of that uh, paragraph that was paragraph twelve. Next one is paragraph thirteen and the subheading is "We'll work quote unquote I guess it's uh, i yeah I guess it's a quote from the book of Ezekiel but anyway yeah that's where I'm gonna end it for tonight. I appreciate you guys coming It's been really interesting and hopefully we'll uh we'll get more of this pretty soon.